Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. I'd like to ask you to take out your outlines. Go ahead and get them out. We're going to need them. Also, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I don't care if you're using a paper Bible when you open there, if you're using a phone Bible when you open there, just open there. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 4 is the last chapter of Scripture that Paul will write in our Bible. It is essentially the last recorded words that we have from Paul to Timothy in the Word of God. And this chapter is really what you would call sort of an emotional crescendo to this entire book of 2 Timothy that we are studying. Because Paul is going to be making his appeal to Timothy, his charge to Timothy. This is sort of what he's trying to say, Paul, when I am gone, this is what I want you to remember to do. Paul, or excuse me, Timothy, you need to be faithful all the way to the end. And this final chapter is his encouragement to do that. I want you to remember, if you're new, what's sort of going on. Paul is actually writing this letter of 2 Timothy from the Mamertine prison in Rome. He is locked up. He won't last long. Soon Nero will chop off his head. And the baton of leadership in the church will pass from Paul to Timothy. And Timothy and Paul knew this day was coming. Timothy traveled for many years with Paul. Timothy studied Paul. He learned how to think like Paul, talk like Paul. He was a living, breathing, walking photocopy of the Apostle of Paul. So the day that the Lord took Paul home, there would be Timothy able to stand in his place. So let's go ahead and I'd like you to stand out of reverence for the Word of God. Hopefully you found 2 Timothy chapter 4. Follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read the first five verses. Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. That ends the reading of God's Word. You can be seated. Uh, these five verses in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the first five verses are really a, a charge to Timothy about what a faithful pastor looks like. What it's going to be like for Timothy to be faithful in his pastoring when Paul is gone. And by the way, this doesn't just apply to Timothy 2,000 years ago as we studied in 
1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. This job description of a faithful pastor that Paul gives to Timothy is not just good 2,000 years ago. It's good today. It tells us what a faithful pastor looks like. So as I teach this morning, really I guess the primary audience for this message is me. Because I'm one of the pastors in this room. And of course the other pastors here at Crosswinds, they're also the primary audience. This tells us what it means to be faithful in our job. But you guys are the secondary audience. And you are an important audience because you need to understand what it looks like to have a faithful pastor. And you need to hold your pastors to the teaching of God's Word, what it means for them to do their ministry well and do their ministry faithfully so they can endure to the end. So this is really important for all of us. Incidentally, this pastoral job description that are in these five verses are going to be very important for Timothy to follow. It's going to serve like the North Star that is going to guide him as he goes through some very difficult days. We know that Paul, or Timothy, excuse me, at this moment was pastoring the church of Ephesus. When the church of Ephesus was initially planted by Paul, it was an exciting church. It was a growing church. It was a vibrant church. Acts talks us about the people burning their books of magic and turning to Christ. Exciting stuff. But after Paul left, and Paul even told them it would happen, that fierce wolves would come in among the sheep and lead many astray. And that's what it's like for Timothy, pastoring in the wake of Paul's initial church planting ministry there. We've already seen in this book that there's many spiritual scammers who are leading people astray. Even some of the church elders have been led astray. This is a difficult time for Timothy. And people are trying to pull Timothy around, away from Paul's teaching of the simple gospel message. And this job description is what will keep him anchored. Incidentally, it wasn't just resistance from in the church that Timothy was going to face in the upcoming years. It was resistance from outside the church as well. We know that Paul, as I mentioned, was already in the Mamertine prison, and he would soon lose his head. That was the beginning of what was empire-wide empire persecution of Christendom in the years that would follow. Many Christians would be drugged into the gladiatorial arenas. They would have their heads chopped off. They would be dismembered. They'd be torn apart by wild animals. It was going to be a very difficult thing to be a Christian in the upcoming years. And it'd be easy for Timothy to lose his path, to go astray in what it means to be a pastor in charge of a church. But once again, this job description that we read this morning is what will keep him anchored and heading in the right direction. Well, we read five verses. Uh, we're not going to be able to go through all five verses today. These verses are very rich. We're going to go through just the first two verses this morning, and then we're going to probably have an additional two weeks after that to work through the remaining three verses. So if you have your outlines out, we'll start right on the very top, and we're going to learn about being a faithful pastor. 
Number one, a faithful pastor must understand the seriousness of his job. We find that in verse 1. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. This verse is talking about what is the seriousness of the pastoral ministry. The word charge here, in some translations, comes across as solemnly charge. It's a very, very strong word. If you're using your outlines, you'll see I put a definition of this word in there for you. Charge means, it means to seriously instruct someone on important matters, especially in a legal context. This is the way your lawyer speaks to you before you go on the witness stand. Like you better listen to what they have to say or things will not go well for you. Same word that Paul is using when he speaks to Timothy. Now, why must Timothy listen to this solemn charge? I have this in your outline as well. The pastor's job is serious because he is serving as a spokesman for God and Jesus Christ. I mean, it's one thing to speak for another human being and to represent them. It's a whole other level of seriousness when you're trying to speak for God and to represent God to people. And if you don't do that well and you lead people astray, huh, that's not the way to go. So the seriousness of a pastor's job is directly related to the one to whom he will answer. Anyone called to communicate the word of God must take their job seriously because they will ultimately answer to God for what they did. James chapter 3 verse 1 reminds us of this. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Before we go into the details of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, let me just talk about James chapter 3, verse 1, as well as this 1 Timothy chapter 4 passage, sort of from a high-level perspective. What both of those passages are talking about is judgment. The idea of the return of Christ or the second coming of Christ. Timothy you need to do a good job as a pastor because when Jesus comes back, you will give an answer to him for your pastoring. Every pastor is, uh, is not directly responsible, by the way, to the church board. Every pastor is not directly responsible to the congregation. Every pastor is not directly responsible to a denomination. Every pastor is directly responsible to Jesus. They will stand before Jesus and give it an answer for what they have taught about Jesus. They must always remember that. Don't bend to pressure from people. Stay faithful to Jesus. Now, if you've been around Crosswind for a while, you'll know this story, but if you haven't, it'll be new to you. But when I was ordained as a pastor in the Free Church many moons ago, um, what they said is when you have your ordination service, you're supposed to find a pastor that you really respect and ask that pastor to come and to do the service and do the sermon. And it's sort of a unique situation at an ordination service 
because the pastor that comes really preaches the sermon at one person. That is the pastor being ordained. Everybody else in the congregation sort of gets to listen in to his words to you. You One of my pastoral heroes is Haddon Robinson. He was my doctoral professor. And I asked if he would come, and he actually made his way to rural Michigan at the time to deliver the ordination sermon to me. And he made one point in the the entire sermon. And it was nice, because it was really easy to remember. And it was this. Kurt, you have an audience of one. An audience of one. Keep in front of your mind that no matter what happens to you in the upcoming years, you will stand before Jesus and give an answer for your pastoring and your preaching. No matter what you do, you must be faithful to Him. And obviously that was impactful because I still remember it, (laughs) even though it's many years ago. Now let's look at the details of 2 Timothy chapter 4. First of all, who is going to do the judging? It's going to be Jesus, by the way, who will be the judge. Look how Paul writes. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. In fact, you find out specifically it's Jesus who will do the judging. John chapter 5, verse 22 tells us this. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. It's interesting the way Paul writes this, and we wouldn't recognize this from just reading this in the English text, but Paul is using legal language here that would uh, disconnect with Timothy as he read it. He's using the legal language of a subpoena to coming to court. For instance, we have dug these things up, as archaeologists have in the ancient world. Here's a literal language of a subpoena from the ancient world. The case will be drawn up against you in the court of Heriopolis in the presence of, and then the judge's name. And Paul is saying, Timothy, all pastors, that when Jesus returns, you will be subpoenaed. You will be brought to the judge, and that'll be Jesus, and you will give an answer for how you have pastored and how you have taught God's people. Now, in legal matters today, when you go to court, there are these things called lawyers, and there's witnesses, and there's cross-examination. You go back and forth as the judge or the jury tries to determine the truth because they don't know the truth. But let me tell you, when pastors stand in front of Judge Jesus, there's going to be no lawyers there. There's going to be no witnesses there. No cross-examination needed because Jesus knows all there is to know. He knows every single thing about us. He knows the words that I speak out loud. He knows the words that I think in my mind. He knows what I'm doing during the day. He knows what I'm watching on YouTube at night. And all pastors are going to be held accountable for what they have done, for how they have lived. 
And just to underscore this, by the way, notice how Paul says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. The idea is that we are living our lives in God's very presence. There's nothing he doesn't see. There's nothing that he doesn't know. And by the way, folks, it's not just that I will be judged by Jesus and I'll have to give an answer for my pastoring. And it's not just that Jesus knows everything about me, but all of us will be judged by Jesus. All of us will give an answer for how we've lived our life. And Jesus knows everything there is to know about you and me. So the idea is that we want to be very, we want to think very carefully and very seriously about how we live. Last week I challenged you, by the way, to continue in our uh, take up and read plan. We're in the book of Hebrews as a church right now, and Hebrews chapter 4 was part of our readings this week, and I'm sure you ran across it. And I just ran across this verse, and I thought how well it fits with our sermon this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is very, very compelling. Incidentally, when it comes to how we are judged by Jesus, uh, I know this may be sort of obvious, but I think it's something we always have to remember. Jesus is not going to hold us accountable for the hurtful things that are done to us. We're going to be held accountable for the hurtful things done by us. Like me, there are people who may say very hurtful things to you. Do very difficult things to you. Really get under your skin. But we don't have to answer to Jesus for that. What we answer to Jesus for is how we respond to those things. Do we respond with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control? Or do we just cuss the person out? That's how we're responsible for it. I like to think of it this way. When you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off in traffic, you're not responsible for the fact they cut you off in traffic. You're responsible for how you wave to them afterwards and how many fingers you use when you do it. That's what we're held responsible for. Now, by the way, this judgment, we should know, is an evaluation for Christians, not a damnation for Christians. The word judge, it's the Greek word krino. It means evaluation. From it, we get our word criteria. From We get our English word critical from it. So, Timothy, your judgment in front of Jesus will be fair. Your judgment in front of Jesus will be strict. Your judgment in front of Jesus will be perfect. But it's not a judgment of damnation. Understand that. For Christians, it's a judgment of rewards. Our evaluation will determine our reward in heaven. And our reward in heaven will determine the level of service to Jesus we have in heaven. So even if we're richly rewarded, it's only so we can serve Jesus better and even love Jesus more in the new creation. Another way to look at this judgment, this judgment of not damnation but of rewards that all Christians will have, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 or chapter 3. 
And in that chapter, Paul talks about how every Christian starts with the foundation of Jesus Christ. Every pastor starts with the foundation of Jesus. And then as a pastor, you build on that foundation. And what will be judged is what you build on the foundation of Jesus with your church. Go ahead and read this with me. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. See that right there? If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. See, it's not a judgment of damnation. It's a judgment of evaluation for rewards. What have you built on the foundation of Jesus as a pastor? Incidentally, Paul um, lived his life very mindful of this day. We read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In fact, I do not even judge myself, he says, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. In context, what is happening here is in Corinth, they have some very gifted pastors and gifted teachers, really good at communicating and moving people. And what's happening is the congregation is starting to sort of rank them. Like, I think this guy is number one. He's the best. And this guy's number two. And this guy's number three. And then he's like, well, those guys over there, they're really sort of boring. We don't even consider them. And Paul says, hey, hold on. Don't you do that evaluation because you don't know their hearts. You don't know their motives. When they stand before Jesus and they're judged by Jesus, he'll know their hearts. He'll know their motives and he'll judge them fairly. The guy that you think is number one may actually rate much farther down the scale than you realize. And those people you think are nobodies, maybe in the eyes of Jesus, Actually, they're much more significant than you ever realized. And Paul says, that's why I don't even judge myself. What matters is how Jesus judges me on that day. Now, continue through this. We find that Jesus, by the way, he said is judge of the living and the dead. And what does that mean? Simply what it says. That when Jesus returns, if you're alive... He'll be your judge. And if you've been dead for 2,000 years, guess what? He's still your judge. He'll resurrect you and, and judge you. Incidentally, to understand this a little better, 
you need to understand that in the Bible, there are at least two different judgments talked about. Some people see more than two judgments. Other people would like to collapse this down to one big judgment. Uh, I personally believe it's two judgments. The first one is called the judgment seat of Christ. It's called also the Bema seat. It is not a judgment of damnation. It's a judgment of Christians where Jesus evaluates our work, he evaluates our service, and he rewards us accordingly. And as I said earlier, those rewards determine how we can serve him in the kingdom to come. But while there's the judgment seat of Christ, there's also a judgment later in history called the Great White Throne Judgment. While Christians are judged first, later in history at the Great White Throne Judgment, everybody else who dies is resurrected. They get imperishable resurrection bodies as well. Now, by the way, a resurrection body like Christ's body that is immortal and that will never die is a great thing when you are going to be serving Jesus for all eternity on the new heavens and the new earth. And you're with Jesus, who the Bible describes as the very fountainhead of joy itself. That's going to be great. But a resurrection body, an indestructible body, is not really a great thing when you're going to be forever in the lake of fire with the devil and his angels. Because the fires never go out, and neither do you. Look what the, the Bible says about the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And then notice this. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we're talking about two judgments. Judgment of Christians, the judgment seat of Christ, a judgment for rewards. Then the great white throne judgment for the judgment of everybody else, and that is the judgment of damnation to the lake of fire. Next thing to learn is this. He says our judgment will take place at Christ's appearing. He says at the end, and by his appearing and his kingdom. The significance here is the word appearing. It's the Greek word epiphany. The historical background on this has to do with the arrival of Roman emperors in small rural towns. Remember, in the ancient world, there was no Twitter. There was no texting. There wasn't even a phone. Imagine that. And so when the emperor was going to be coming to a town or passing through a town, he sent a runner who would go ahead of him and say, by the way, the emperor is going to be coming to your town in about mm, three days. And the people are like, we better clean this place up. We want to make it look good. 
So they'd patch the potholes. They'd clean up all the garbage on the street. They would wash off the buildings. People would put on their best clothes. They'd polish the town to make it look spick and span. So when the emperor came, they were fit for him. This is the exact same word that Paul uses to Timothy. Think about Jesus' appearing. He is coming back. And he is going to establish his kingdom. Live in such a way that you are ready for his return. And I'm telling you, he is going to return before it actually happens. Now Paul's point, his big overarching point in this first section, is that all pastors must understand the seriousness of their task. All pastors are being watched by Jesus. All pastors are going to be judged strictly someday when they stand in front of Jesus for their pastoring because how they present the Word of God carries great consequences for other people who are under them, who are learning from them, who are following their example. So you want to pastor well, and you want to finish well, and be faithful all the way to the end. That brings us to our second major point, which is this. A faithful pastor must understand the content of his message. It's real simple. He says here, preach the word. That is the core of your job description. A pastor's core job is preaching. I put this in your outline. Preaching means to publicly proclaim or announce a message. Earlier I told you that there was no such thing as social media in the ancient world. So when the emperor desired to get a message out into his kingdom, he would send heralds out to the different um, cities and they would go into the public squares and arenas and they would cry out, they would announce the emperor's news of the day of what his proclamation was. And this was done verbally. And, you know, most people aren't reading at that point. So you have to hear it orally. And what we find is that Paul had been appointed a preacher of the gospel. He was to verbally and publicly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, going from town to town to do that. And now Paul is saying to Timothy, by the way, as the baton passes into your hands, guess what your job is? To publicly proclaim the good news of Jesus. Now Paul is different than Timothy. Timothy is literally timid. That's where we get our English word timid from because Timothy was a timid, soft-spoken person. Unlike Paul, who was an outspoken, rather boisterous person. So the idea of public proclamation may not necessarily be Timothy's personal shape. Timothy knows that public proclamation of the gospel can be very costly. We covered this a few weeks ago in the book of Acts. Paul went from town to town proclaiming Jesus. And they made attempts on stoning him. And eventually they actually did stone him and left him for dead because he was talking about Jesus. And Paul is saying to Timothy, guess what, you know, that may be you someday. Maybe you'll be stoned for talking about Jesus, but expect it. 
that is the core of your job description. Not to be quiet about the good news, but to proclaim the good news. Now let's talk specifically about what Timothy is to preach. He was to preach the Word. And what is the Word? I have this in your outline for you. The Word is both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we learned this just a few weeks ago. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. When you proclaim God's message, Timothy, keep your finger in the text. Proclaim the Word. Romans chapter 10 talks about the importance of proclaiming the Word of God. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him on whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone what? Preaching. Publicly proclaiming the word of God. Now folks, there are people out there who are gifted speakers. There are people out there who have great gifts of oratory, wise men, intelligent men, knowledgeable men. Some people are wonderful at telling stories to people, getting jokes, and entertaining people. But if people are not putting their finger in the text and preaching the Word of God, I'll tell you, they are not a faithful pastor. The core of a pastor's job is to preach the Word. This is why here at Crosswinds, the core of what we do is expository preaching of the Word of God. Specifically, what we do most of the time here is we do something called consecutive expository preaching. We start at the beginning of a book and we continue to preach verse by verse through that book teaching, illustrating, explaining, and applying verse by verse for the people of God. Let me show you what expository preaching means, and I gave you a definition in your outline. Expository preaching is the presentation of the Word of God to people in an intelligible and forceful manner that accurately conveys the meaning of the sacred writer. So what we are standing on and what we are teaching is this book, not my words. Now I want to give you some explanation here. Why is consecutive expository preaching the regular practice at Crosswinds? Four reasons you need to know. Number one, it lets God speak to us rather than hearing a man speak to us. From the front here, we want you to hear God's words. We do not want you to hear man's words. There are many things you can go on your phone or on your computer to entertain you, inform you, things that are helpful, great YouTube videos that tell you how to do all kinds of stuff, fun stuff, laughs, but they're not the Word of God. The Bible says we are only born again by hearing the word of truth. The Bible says that the only way you'll grow to spiritual maturity is by constantly studying the word of truth. Man does not live by bread alone 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So all week long, listen to social media. Look at the latest news. That's fine. But when you come to church on Sunday, what you desperately need to hear is God's Word, not man's Word. God's Word is what will save you and sustain you. Man's Word will not do that for you, which is why we preach from this book. Now, let me answer why we go consecutively through books of the Bible. It forces the preacher to proclaim all of God's Word. Because we start in the beginning of a book and go to the end of the book, sometimes we have really exciting verses that are fun to preach. But to be honest, sometimes we have really hard verses that are difficult to preach. And sometimes God's Word brings us into hot-button topics that we would normally avoid if it was up to us to determine what we want to talk about. For instance, because we've worked through, straight through books, we've talked about church structure. We've wrestled with issues of creation versus evolution. We've wrestled with issues on the role of women. We've wrestled with issues on marriage. We've even talked about sexuality. And it wasn't because, hey, guess what? The pastor wants to talk about sex this week. It's simply because, well, that was just the next verse. I didn't set the agenda. God set the agenda. That's why we go right through it. Also, consecutive expository preaching promotes biblical literacy. See, when I get to study the Bible and I get to teach the Bible, that helps all of us know the Bible. Now, for instance, I could decide that instead of wanting to teach the Bible, I wanted to tell you stories. Stories about a dog, a boy, and a cat, and how they all interacted together, and you would leave and go to the parking lot, and you'd be talking about the story of the dog, the boy, and the cat, which, by the way, is nothing wrong with stories. But I don't want you going to the parking lot talking about the stories I've told. I want you to go to the parking lot with the very Word of God in the, your minds and thoughts. The Word of God is far more powerful and effective than my Word. That's why we preach right through it. Fourth, we preach right through Scripture. It enables a message that carries authority. When a pastor preaches, you always preach from a sense of authority. Where does that authority come from? Many times, public speakers have that authority in their position. Sometimes they have that authority in their reasoning. Sometimes they have that authority in their logic. Sometimes they have that authority in their voice because they talk real loud, so you have to listen. But all that authority added together doesn't begin to touch the simple words, Thus saith the Lord. The Bible says. That authority trumps all other authorities. That's why we keep our finger in the text. So we've seen that a, a faithful pastor must understand the seriousness of their job, that they will be judged by Jesus. A faithful pastor must understand that their job is to preach the Word. Now, as we see here, a faithful pastor must understand the scope of his mission. And this last section essentially just broadens out on the understanding of what does it mean to faithfully preach the Word of God. 
And here's what we find. The preacher must always be eager to preach. Preach the word, he says, and be ready. That word be ready means be urgent or be eager. The idea is that when you are a pastor, there should be a sense of urgentness, there should be a sense of eagerness to preach the word of God at all times. There's no such thing as holidays, there's no such thing as vacations, there's no such thing as off hours. When somebody calls you up and says, hey, I'm really struggling uh, with this issue in my life, what does the Bible say? We can't say, I'm sorry, I'm really... I'm on vacation right now. Oh, why don't you call me back in three days? No. A faithful pastor is eager and ready and desirous to preach the word of God. It's a mindset that seizes every opportunity. Good preachers are eager to preach, not reticent to preach. A good preacher will not do their job simply because it's vocational. They will do their job with passion. There is not reluctance to speak to a crowd. There is readiness to speak to a crowd. One of the silliest questions that I think I've ever been asked when I've applied for different pastoral positions, and I've seen this one a number of times, where a search committee will ask a pastor, you know, if you could do anything in the world, what would you do besides pastor? What would you do besides preach? And I always look at them like a dog that heard a whistle. Like, do you think I'm a pastor because I couldn't do anything else? Do you think I'm a pastor because I wanted to do something else and I failed at it? No. The reason that I'm a pastor is because God placed a desire in my heart to tie and teach the Word of God, to open the Word of God, to explain the Word of God to the people of God. I love the fact when I see the light go on in your eyes and all of a sudden the text clicks. I love the fact when I see people come to Jesus and they trust in Jesus. I love watching the fact when people repent of their sin and they flee to Jesus. That's what I love. That's why I'm a pastor and I'm eager to preach and I'm ready to preach. Not because I couldn't do anything else. This is the only thing that God gives me peace doing. Now, by the way, pastoring and preaching is a very hard job. And maybe I just hold myself to a different standard, but I'll tell you, every Saturday I am here eight hours a day just reading, rereading, studying the manuscript before I teach it to you this morning. I study constantly all week long. I am reading, constantly reading, constantly typing, constantly thinking. It's, a, it's exhausting. But, you know... I continue to do it because God doesn't give me peace any other way. And that's the way it goes. And I'm eager to do it and excited to do it. And I think that eagerness, quite honestly, doesn't come from me. It comes from the Holy Spirit who has placed the desire in my heart. Something else he says. A preacher not, must not be eager to preach, but a preacher must be ready to preach. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. What does that mean? Preach the word when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. When it fits into your schedule and when it doesn't fit into your schedule. That's what a good preacher does. Now, before COVID, I used to have a chance to fly. 
Then we would, you'd fly someplace and you'd be at a conference and you'd be on your way back. And those of you guys who fly, you know what I'm talking about. It's one of those red-eye flights. You're coming home and you end up sitting next to a person you've never seen before in your life and probably will never, ever see again in your life. And you're like, I'm exhausted. I'm putting my ear pods in and I'm going to go to sleep and hopefully I wake up and this person is gone. And then what happens is the Holy Spirit begins to work on your heart. Well, maybe the reason I sat you next to that person is because they've never heard the good news of Jesus before. And I placed you there so you can tell them about Jesus. And then you're like, yes, Lord, I have to be ready in season and out of season to be able to talk about the goodness of Jesus. And you strike up a conversation and you pray for an open door. But that's what a faithful and good preacher does. Now, then he goes into some aspects of preaching. The preacher must have negative and positive sides to his message. It's a little list. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. What do these words mean? The first two are negative. Reproof. It pertains to the mind. It is knowledge of sin rebuke pertains to the heart. It is conviction of sin. So the first thing a pastor does is to show people what God says in his word about sin. The next thing a a pastor does is then say, well, how does your life match up with God's word? Which, by the way, that is a very uncomfortable thing to do. And if you've ever been with me through counseling, this is always the way I do it. What I do is when people are going through a difficult issue in their life, what I do is I get my Bible out. I write down verses, not just the reference. I write the actual verse down of what the Bible says about particular issues. Say the issue is premarital relationships. I write down what the Bible says about the importance of sexual purity. I write down the verses. I underline the key words. And then I meet with the person. And what I do is I take that paper and I turn it to them and I say, read what the Scripture says. And then I say, well, how is that going in your life? See, reprove and then rebuke. Now, at that point... Sometimes people will say, well, you don't like me, do you? I said, I like you. I'm just showing you the Word of God, doing the first two tasks of my job. Show you what the Bible says about issues of sin, and then talk to you about your life and those issues. By the way, this is not a pleasant thing. It's a very uncomfortable thing. But the Bible says it's a necessary thing. Because until you begin with reproving and rebuking, until you have the bad news... There is no good news in Jesus, is there? That's why you begin where it's uncomfortable. Now, after you reprove and you rebuke, you exhort, which it says here, it's an encouragement to change. It's a call to restoration. So you encourage people to repent. You encourage people to run to Jesus Christ. This is what Paul did. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted you, exhorted each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and his own glory. And he says, you continue doing that, by the way, with complete patience. Folks, after you rebuke, reprove and rebuke, do people instantly turn around? 
even after you exhort them and encourage them to change? What do you think? Nope. A lot of times they say, that's nice, I'll think about it, and they walk away. And then you're called to be patient, very patient with them, bringing up the topic again, showing them the Word of God, telling them about how much you love them, encouraging them to change, and then be patient. Be patient again. And when you lose patience, by the way, remember how patient Jesus has been with you. And then you be just as patient with the person that you are encouraging to change. And what else do you do? Teaching. You go back to teaching. Constantly teaching the Word of God. Because it's the Word of God. It sort of acts like vinegar on rust. You know what vinegar does? You have a pair of rusty pliers you left outside? Put it in vinegar, and that rust will dissolve off the pliers and free them again. That's what the preaching of the Word of God. It dissolves the corrosive effect, the rust of sin, off of the human heart and softens it to the Word of God, to repentance and change. So folks, the faithful pastor, what is his job? The core of it, preach the Word. He has to be ready. Be eager. Be excited. It's a privilege. In season and out of season, when you're ready, when you're not, when it's comfortable, when it's not. Say the hard things, re reprove and rebuke, talk about sin, but say the encouraging things, encourage people to turn to Jesus. And by the way, it's not a part-time job, it's a full-time job. It's a serious job, because one day every preacher will stand in front of Jesus and give an answer for how he's pastored. Incidentally, folks, it's not just that pastors are to preach the word. It's all of us are to share the word. All of us are to be eager to share. All of us are to be ready in season and out of season to talk to our friends and neighbors about Jesus Christ and what the Bible says. And all of us will one day stand before Jesus and give an answer for how we have lived. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what your word tells us about what it means to pastor faithfully. I ask here at Crosswinds that we would be a church filled with faithful pastors who are eager to preach, ready to preach, and keep their finger in the text, who faithfully expound and exposit the word of God, not stories out of their own minds. And may you use your word to create and sustain spiritual life among us and help us to reach people with Jesus in our community and around the world. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.